We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 today. Oh, you know what? I had forgotten about a video earlier today. Could we throw that up there right now? Just a couple minutes long here. This is, um, uh, this is Multiplication Sunday for the uh, evangelical free denomination that our church is a part of. And um, so they asked that we play this video today um, to uh, just kind of let us know some cool things that are going on and also that we would um, briefly pray for um, the multiplication of new churches in the future. So we're good. Thank I was a man with this whole part of my body missing. You know, like this whole part was gone and I'm just living like, you know, being a nice guy on the outside and whatever, but I think like the true heart and soul of me was not there. I felt no worth anymore. I thought I was like the life flashing before your eyes or feeling like dead. Like my whole livelihood was dead. So why get dressed again? Why take a shower? I'm, <laughs> I'm worthless right now. I was searching for an answer to why I screwed up why I was living the way I was living. And I didn't know there was an answer out there for that. You know, our heart here is we want to see as many healthy evangelical churches in our community and in all the communities of central Wisconsin as we possibly can. Uh, We're not in competition with other churches, so the passion is always to see a multiplication of healthy churches. Uh, We felt in Wisconsin Rapids there were far more unreached people than there were reached people and lots of room for another good evangelical healthy church. The opportunity to try and impact people in Wisconsin Rapids to try and reach more people, uh, I think it fairly quickly made sense. Our church has always had a heart to do outreach and so when the opportunity came up to do that and it became a very doable kind of thing, I think it was an easy sell to the church. It wasn't hard. The church was easily behind it. A friend, uh, Doug, who's from the Wisconsin Rapids area, and I uh, started searching for a site. Uh, Actually, Doug and I were driving by the Shopco Mall, which was at that time pretty much abandoned. I think he called me or I called him, and we said, hey, what about the mall? Found out that it was bank repossessed, it was available, and and God provided that at at a price that was kind of a God thing right there, an open door. We launched Crossview in Wisconsin Rapids in 2017, celebrating that now there was a vibrant church in Wisconsin Rapids. Basically knew the church was here like I knew Shopko was next door. Right? It's a storefront. Crossview Church, Shopko, Cops. That's all I knew about the church. Oh, I guess what caught my attention was it was different. There wasn't steeples and stained glass. Right, it was semi less intimidating than maybe a grand entrance church. It did come in here like not presentable, how I would normally be, because I was just like, I don't know where I'm going or what I'm doing, but let's go check this out. I came to the church on Sunday and to seek out a pastor to talk to. And I went into the office after that service and made an appointment. And I met with Dan and he explained the gospel and the story of redemption and gave my life to Jesus in his office that day. 
that was the connection then, man. <laughs> I think church multiplication is incredibly important because the church is the vehicle that God has chosen to use to reach the world. It's not enough just to help someone um, come to faith in Christ. They have to be connected to a church family. If anyone as an individual or any church is considering being involved in a church plant, a multi-site, I think you should go for it because God's going to use them as he's used them in the past. Not everyone can fit into the walls that we have here or the walls that you may have wherever you are. So we need everyone to be looking to multiply new churches to reach new people. I guess if it wasn't for CrossFit, I don't, I don't know how I would have came out of my brokenness. Two years ago when I did give my life to Jesus Christ in Pastor Dan's office, I come to church every Sunday with my family. <laughs> so it's like... How wild is that, right? That brokenness led to being a Christian leader in my family now. I had no idea that something could change someone's perspective on their life. You know? That's so fresh and amazing. It's it's overwhelming how amazing it is. testimony there, right? Very encouraging of why it is important that we continue on with the mission that Christ has left for us in the Great Commission. And um, that's what the EB Free Church is all about. Is uh, I think the last phrase there and there was, um, they exist to build transformational churches where people can meet Christ. So um, that's what we're all about as well. So uh, it's cool to hear that testimony and know that many of us share a similar testimony. And if it doesn't even feel that similar, there's at least the fact that we know the same Savior and he has done the same thing for us as he has for that individual. All right, well, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump into Philippians 2. Um, We'll pray for um, the advancement of the gospel in all parts of the world, and then um, for our time together. Bow your heads with me, please. Father, as we come to your word this morning, uh, we come with many distractions, with many burdens, many cares, many concerns, many thoughts, wrong thoughts, right thoughts. We come with sin in our hearts. We come with uh, brokenness in our relationships in the world and um, with with the world system and with uh, where we are in it. But ultimately, Lord, we come to bring all those things and lay them at the cross, knowing that Christ is greater than all and that in him we found the answer to everything that we face in this world. So I pray that you would prepare our hearts to read your word. I pray that as um, we move in our worship service this morning, um, that we'd be reminded that we are a part of a global movement of people coming to Christ to make him known and to make him great in this world. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would send more workers into the harvest and that you would uh, reap a great fruit for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, Philippians 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. And uh, one last thing before we go ahead and re- read that, I want to remind you that um, today is Communion Sunday. So um, hopefully you'll be preparing your hearts to um, participate in that together. And um, I'm going to have somebody sent down to let the kids know, let the, rather let the teachers know that communion is about to start so that the kids can join you. We'll talk more about that when we get there, but please be ready for that. Okay, without further ado, and this um, service has already had plenty of do, <laughs> let's read Philippians 2, 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That is the word of the Lord. So, Paul presents to us five things that are provided for us with this if statement in verse 1. They're provided in Christ for people who know him and have a life in him. They're gifts provided for what Paul called in the previous passage a gospel-worthy life. They are things that he's equipped us with. And as we look at that idea again of being worthy or fit or suitable... We're not recipients of even one of these things in the gospel because of righteousness on our own part, because of anything that we've done to earn it. Um, It's been famously said very well that Christ is our good works. Christ has done on our behalf what was impossible for us to do. Amen? Amen? There's no obedience or good deeds that merit a person with salvation in Christ. And all these things that are mentioned in verse 1 are come into the life of the believer freely as a result of faith in Christ. As we've mentioned with joy previously, encouragement, comfort, participation, affection, and sympathy, just like joy, they're all experienced by the means of grace that God has appointed. That being his word, his indwelling spirit, and the fellowship of believers. The degree to which we experience these things in verse 1 is best understood as we avail ourselves of God's means of grace. So a Christian may be joyless, discouraged, lonely, feel unloved. But if salvation has occurred, if he's filled with the Spirit, he will not remain that way. So I taught middle schoolers for five years, and many of them who seemed to ebb and flow with their grades as they seemingly, I called it, experimented with studying and preparation. A student may reach a point of being fed up with their poor grades, and they would lean hard into studying and preparing for a test, and they would do very well. Does this story sound familiar? Yeah. I mean, this, it's this amazing thing. You know, teachers tell their students, if you study, if you prepare, you might actually do pretty well. And the crazy thing is, is that the students do that, and they do, and they're amazed that you know, something their teacher said to them was actually true. So some students treated that victory as a sign that they have arrived and are now good students. And so when the next test came around, when the next assignment came around, they returned to their old habits, hoping that they had become a new person that didn't need to study any longer, that didn't need to prepare, and could expect the same results. Well, of course, their reaction would be, I did so well last time. What happened? It's not hard to say. On the opposite side, you have many students who were used to good grades 
often, and they would go through slumps at various times. Sometimes it would be because they were sick or because there were distractions in life situations or other things that would kind of take the forefront of their mind. But when they realized how strange it was that their grades were dipping, they did what was necessary to achieve the grades they were used to according to their ability and commitment. They jumped right back to where they were. So what's the difference? The first student experimented with the new behavior and deceived himself about the results. He had thought that he had become the source of this thing and that he did not need to follow the instructions of his teacher any longer, but rather was able to be what he perceived the smart kids as being, that, well, they don't really need to work hard. That just comes naturally to them. When truly, those who do well do have to work hard. They do have to study. They do need to exercise their scholasticism. The second realized that he was not at the level he knew he ought to be and returned not to something in himself, but to the means of his previous accomplishment, which were studying and preparing and doing your homework on time. And he returned to those and he had the results that he expected. If you read verse 1 and see a lack of these things in your life, it could mean that you don't know the one who provides them. That's possible. But it could also mean that you've looked away to other means and must return to the God who's provided those means of receiving those good gifts in Christ. If these things are true of a Christian, what we see in verse 1, the fruit of it will be shown in the context of the local body. So we see that in verse 1, transferring over to verse 2. If these things are are true, then complete my joy by expressing it in the context of other believers. So this first section you'll see in your bulletin, um, it talks about in verse 1 through 2, we're talking about the action of God and the result uh, in our lives. So if you have these things in Christ, bear fruit in the church. So what's the first one? What's the first thing that's listed here? If there is any encouragement, that's just a test to see if you're looking at your Bibles or not. Okay. If there's any encouragement in Christ. So let's ask that question first of all. Is there encouragement in Christ? Yes. A little bit? A lot? Some may seem to experience a little bit. Some may seem to experience a lot. Those who perhaps experience a little bit may look at those who experience a lot of it and think they're really weird. Like there's something wrong with that guy. He gets way too excited about getting up too early on Sunday morning to get to church, right? But again, the, as we said earlier, the, there's a correlation between how we avail ourselves or participate in the means of God's grace, his word, his spirit, prayer, fellowship with believers, how we participate in those things to the degree that we look forward to them. There's a connection between that and how we experience things like this encouragement. So this word means counsel. And Isaiah 9, 6 comes to mind, of course, with the prophecy about Jesus being this very thing. He's called a wonderful counselor. And the word of counsel, the encouragement that we have, is where? Where can you find that counselor encouragement? In the Bible, right? And is this something that is elusive to us? Is this something that's available to us? But we almost act like it's elusive, right? I mean, when I look back on my week and my, my week and my relationship to how much I've opened God's word to hear from him and to be encouraged, to receive counsel, I almost act as if it's something hard for me to get to, you know, by the way I prioritize it. I'm just talking about myself here. If you feel a little convicted, that's not my fault. <laughs> but this counsel, this book is given to us freely. We're blessed to have access to it each day. Of course there's encouragement to be found in the word of Christ. What about discouragement? Is that a real problem in the world? It's kind of the first thing that I go to when things don't go my way. 
my immediate reaction is discouragement. It tears me down. This is not how I wanted it to go. The projectors were supposed to work this morning. Right? And I get discouraged. And that discouragement becomes part of my identity. And I start to think of myself and think like, oh, the projectors didn't work. Therefore, I'm a terrible Sunday school teacher. Can you relate to this? Like, can, you, can you put that in your own life and realize when things don't go your way, you can respond with this discouragement and make it part of your identity? It's important that we discover what discourages us and battle that discouragement with the gospel of Christ in every little moment. And what I had to tell myself this morning when these projectors, I'm not putting a word in front of the projectors, I'm very thankful for them. When these projectors didn't work, I had to tell myself, you still have the same message to preach this morning. Right? And even though we had to do Sunday school like Neanderthals without technology, the gospel is still the gospel. Right? And so it is with anything that's going on, anything that discourages us. Christ is still for you. No matter what things come your way, he is even designed to use them for your betterment. It's amazing. Have you failed at work or in a relationship or at school or with your family? Christ has taken your failings and made an end to them at the cross. Do you look at your Christian life and see shortcomings? The grace of Christ covers a multitude of sins. Do you doubt God? Christ lived in perfect faith in God on your account so that all the good that Christ accomplished on the earth was done on your behalf. We have ample reason to be encouraged in Christ. Amen? You have to say amen when I put it with a question mark at the end, right? Yeah, thank you. Even just for my own sake, even if you don't feel like it. It just means you agree or yes. Okay, cool. So, um, John 16, 35. What did I do with my... How did I lose my... There it is. Okay. Too much going on up here. Thank you. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. What a great thing for Jesus to say to his disciples on the night that he'd be betrayed and crucified. You're going to see me be lifted up on a piece of wood and humiliated and murdered unjustly. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Praise God. That's amazing. He says this at the Last Supper. So that in me you may have peace There's great encouragement to be taken in Christ. It doesn't matter what happens tomorrow. Christ has overcome the world 2,000 years ago. Is there any comfort from love? Yes, there is. Is there any comfort to be had in Christ? Is comfort a guarantee in love? Yes. (laughs) I think you're right. I think that there is a guarantee the way we perceive it and the way we understand it and hope to receive it may not match up with that, though. It cannot mean that all of our desires for temporal comforts are guaranteed in Christ's love, right? Anything that I think I need doesn't necessarily mean that God thinks I need it as well, right? Okay, thank you. That was a good response. Good response. Any good gift comes from him, yet these are not meant to be held on to or grasped, as we'll find in next week's passage, when, when Paul talks about Christ, who did not look at equality with God, which he had, which was rightfully his, a thing to be held on to, and to be relied upon such that he couldn't 
humble himself, become a normal human being like us, and die in our place to make us his. If we drive a car, if we own a home, if we eat eat at our favorite restaurants, if we look forward to Christmas celebrations, these are all things that I look forward to, by the way, if you're curious. I did come up with these myself. We ought to be thankful and let these things serve to grow our love for the giver more than the gift. So it's not a bad thing to go out to eat with your family and enjoy that time. Christians aren't meant to feel guilty about enjoying good things in the world. What we're meant to do is not make idols out of them and think that this is my ultimate source of happiness. That good time that I spend around the table at Chick-fil-A with my wife and daughters, I look at and I say, this is so fun. This fills me with joy. It's a, it's a picture of the good gift that God has given me and of his grace, his patience with me, his love for me. I'm talking about going out to Chick-fil-A. I mean, that's not that impressive, but it's, it's a, it's, you take one of those things that you enjoy in this life that's a good thing, that's not sinful, and realize God has granted it to you in his grace, undeserved. And that that should lead us to worship him more. So this word comfort is so cool. We see comfort in the New Testament several times, but Paul uses a Greek word here that is only used in this verse. So you should gasp at that. Oh, wow, really, what does it mean? I want to know what it means, right? Yeah. (laughs) He uses this word that speaks of comfort from a side-by-side nearness. So this is not... I sent you a very comforting email. I I sent you something from Amazon last week. There's some distance between us. I'm just comforting you from afar. This is comfort that is near. Christ has come near to live on this earth, to live in our place, to die in our place, to rise again for our justification, to make us his. But beyond that, he says at his ascension, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I will be with you. And this is not just a with you like in mind, like what Paul talks about with the Philippians here, right? He talks a lot about his unity with the church, even though he is far away, he's in prison, and they're enjoying freedom in Philippi, right? Jesus is not far away from us and just sending us encouragement from far away. He has been brought near, and one of the ways that we know that is through this book. If I write a letter to my wife or a text message or a or an email, or whatever it might be, she can receive a distant comfort in my words, but God's words are far more powerful and effective than anything we can write to each other. When you read this, and the Holy Spirit enlightens your heart, it's not a matter of saying, God has sent me this from a distant time and place, but rather God is here speaking these words to me right now. That is exciting. That is comfort. That is side-by-side comfort that Paul is talking about. So do you consider comfort from God through things or through his presence? Do you feel comfort from God when you you get the bills paid, when the car is fixed, when when sicknesses are over? All those things are good. They're not bad things. But they're not meant to be the comfort that we look to and rely upon. They're meant to be a picture of that, to draw us to the true comforter who is side by side with us. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. I had to throw that in there because I was thinking about it as I was writing this and thinking about this. The assurance that I have, Christ is my Savior, my Lord. He is with me, and that fact that he is with me, when you grab onto that, you'll realize it's just a foretaste. It's just like getting a sample of what you'll experience in eternity with him. It's amazing. 
So that weirdo who just seems so encouraged by Christ all the time. It's nothing compared to the glory of what will be revealed when we are fully with him. So, 1 John 3, 1. John's getting a lot of um, popularity today. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Just had this little lump in my heart for a second, thinking about being God's children, thinking about his nearness to me, and thinking about how I love coming here every weekend. This is my fifth week away from my kids, though. Weekend, rather. Not in a row. I haven't been five weeks away from them, but just three days away from them. And as I, I was getting ready to leave on Friday, uh, my wife, Sarah, told me something about my oldest, my two-and-a-half-year-old, who was sitting with my um, two-month-old. And she sat there and looked at Lucy, and Nora, the older one, said, Lucy misses Daddy. I mean, he's so sad. <laughs> and as I look at this and I think about what this means... That God has called us to be, that we've been, slow down, listen. (laughs) The love the Father has given to us is that we should be called his children. And not his children in that like, someday we're going to get to meet our parents, our our heavenly Father in heaven, you know, who, who loves us so much and who's done all the, no, this is a nearness. When he talks about being, us being his children, he doesn't mean that like there's some distance between us and it's just a nice sentiment, but rather he has come near to us in the way that we can only parents, we know we can only parent our kids when we're with them, right? That's why we get so scared to send them away to college and stuff like that. Because we feel like we can't parent them anymore. That distance makes a difference, but the distance makes no difference with God. He's here with us today and now and forever. Is there participation in the Spirit? You're going to love this. This word participation is that word koinonia, which means what? People who have been paying attention and doing their homework. Good students. What is it? Partnership or fellowship, right? And we've been talking about fellowship a lot. We've used uh, D.A. Carson's quote every week. I don't think it's in here. Let's see just real quick. It's not. D.A. Carson's quote on what fellowship is, is, again, a self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Self-sacrificing conformity. I'm shaping myself in light of this vision that is shared between me and all believers and highlighted in this passage with the Spirit of God. When you're on mission, you have a vision for something, it matters who you team up with that vision on, right? When you're at work and you, you get a team for a project and you sit down and you look and they go, oh no, not these guys. I'm not get, I remember in middle school, it was like the worst one. I had this, like the worst team ever, because I was used to being the guy who didn't do anything in the group projects. And when I got my team, I realized I was the only guy who was going to do anything in the group project. I, I've been a teacher, I was a teacher for five years, but I was a terrible student growing up. Um, but it was this terrible feeling, like nothing's going to get done. Now, when we look at the church, though, and we look at the fact that God has called us to preach the gospel to everyone, and that anyone who receives Christ can be children of God... It's not enough for us to say, I don't want so-and-so to be a part of this mission, though, because it's going to go horribly. The fact is, is that we have participation, fellowship, or partnership with the Spirit of God. And when the Spirit of God is involved in something, it doesn't matter who else is. You know what I mean? I mean, in a way, yes, it does. And you only trust certain people with certain things, and we have certain giftings and everything. But the overall mission of making Christ known to the world is shared by all believers. And so we have no right whatsoever to look at someone and say, yeah, but they're not going to be spreading that vision. They're not going to be sharing the gospel at all. That's, that's not for them. 
No, rather, we have participation with the Spirit and therefore unity with each other. So, there's great joy to be had in that, adding to that fellowship with each other in order to complete joy. So, you know, he says this in verse 1, is there a participation in the Spirit? And then jump to verse 2. If this is true, complete my joy by being of the same mind. If you have fellowship with the Spirit, complete my joy by having fellowship with each other. And I would say as well, complete your own joy with that. Okay? I think that one of the big reasons why Christians are joyless is even if they're very good at reading their Bible and praying and sharing the gospel and doing all those kind of things, if they neglect to be in fellowship with other believers, they're going to experience joylessness because when Paul talks about the completion of joy, it involves unity with other believers. So, really cool verse here, Zechariah 4, 6, one of my favorites. Um, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Do you know that song, Ross? That's a song, too. We should do that one sometime. It's a great song. Um, But anyway, it's a better Bible verse, even so. Because might, power, ability, accomplishment, notoriety, identity, nothing. doesn't matter. By the spirit of God, he will do what he sets out to do. How about affection and sympathy? Yes or no? Is there affection and sympathy? We should answer all these questions. Paul's asking us, right? There is affection. There is sympathy. Does the Lord show affection to you? Paul's expressed the depth of affection he feels for the church in Philippians 1.8. If you remember, if you want to go back to that real quick, he says, God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And if you remember, we kind of camped out on that for a moment just to realize he's making a huge statement here, right? I have the affection for you that Christ has for you. Wow, who do you think you are, Mr. Paul? You think you could get to such a level of affection? Apparently he does. I don't think he means that in a quantitative way. I think he means it in a viewpoint, a perspective kind of way. Because what is the affection of Christ? Unconditional, doesn't matter who you are, what you did, anything like that. Reminds me of an old boy band song that I will not get into right now. But, doesn't matter anything about yourself. What matters is that God is choosing to show his love. It's unconditional. So Christ's love is unconditional towards us, and it's sacrificial. It costs him something. He's not just going to say, hey, I love you, and here you can have this because it doesn't really matter if I lose that thing. You know what I mean? It's kind of like when people say, hey, we're not going to use this food, we're not going to use these items or whatever, do you want them? And then you say, oh, no, I don't really want them. And then the first person is like somehow offended by the fact that you didn't want them. But the truth is is that you weren't giving them to be a gift, you were giving them because they were trying to get rid of stuff, Right? I do this all the time. I'm like, please, take some stuff from me. And everybody is like, no. And I'm like, hey, why aren't you accepting my good gift? Because it's not a good gift, right? It's just me trying to offload some of the junk that's in my house, right? Rather, Christ loves us in a sacrificial, radically sacrificial way. We saw from verses 1, chapter 1, verses 24 through 26, that Paul would even choose to remain in the flesh in order to serve the church. He basically gives this picture of, if I had the choice right now to go be with Jesus, or to stay here in prison, I'd rather stay here in prison because there's hope I could get out, and then I could come back and help you guys. I could come back and serve you guys. I mean, if you really think about that, if Paul had the choice, if Jesus showed up and said, hey, you want to come with me right now, or do you want to stick around? Can you imagine saying you'd rather stick around? Like what kind of affection does Paul have for the church? That he would rather stick around in order for the betterment of the church. He's not saying that he doesn't want to go to heaven. He's just saying, I can wait. If it means that it, better things will happen while I'm here for you, I will wait to be with Christ. That's pretty awesome. So is there sympathy 
Look at Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest. Who's our high priest? Jesus and a high priest is somebody who goes to God on behalf of God's people. Okay? So, real simple different differentiation, maybe too simple, between a priest and a prophet is this. A priest goes to God on behalf of God's people. A prophet goes to God's people on behalf of God. Make sense? And Jesus does both of them. So anyway, here we talk about him being a high priest. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Is it wrong to be tempted? Are you a sinner if you've been tempted? No, not at all. Sin happens when we give in to that temptation, when we allow that temptation to shape our future actions. So when Christ was tempted, does that mean that he was not the spotless sacrifice that he could have been? No. And, and how do you think, do you think Christ was tempted like on an average level or was it a little bit different? Do you remember his temptation? Where did he go? The wilderness, the desert, no food, no water. Who showed up there? Not Satan's lieutenant, not the new guy. You know, it was the Lord of evil himself appeared to Jesus with everything he could have. And how did Jesus overcome that temptation, folks? Yes. And can you do that? Do you have the word? Isn't that amazing? You know, Jesus is the word of God. He could have just sat there and been like, go away from me, Satan. We're done. I'm done with this. But no, rather, instead, he endured that temptation and fought with it in the way that he calls us to by his word. And again, he didn't even just use new words in that moment. He used old words, ancient words from the book of Deuteronomy to battle that temptation. And so, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. When we come to God and we say, Lord, I know you wanted me to do this, And be strong, but I did this, and I was weak. Christ can sympathize with us. And does he choose to? Yes. Awesome. Praise the Lord. These things are, as expected and as we know, are provided for believers. The provision of God of these things in the gospel brings a closeness, a dependence, and a fellowship with God. Paul is then, in effect, asking this. If these things are true and have brought you to a place of intimacy with God, let that extend into unity with believers. So we've gone through all of that. Now we're going to go to the second point, the perspective being a viewpoint of consideration. Oh, yeah, not there yet. Sorry. So, yeah, I skipped it. (laughs) So the result of these actions is seen in the community of believers. Does that make sense? You know that these things are true if verse 2 is true. If all these things are received by you in Christ, which he's offered to you in the gospel through faith in him alone, turning from all your own ways of trying to make yourself right with God, and leaning only on what Christ has done for you at the cross. They're available for you to take freely. And the way that we know that that's rooted in our hearts and is real is in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Those things that we have in Christ should translate over to creating unity with other believers because other believers around us have the same things. If all these things complete Paul's joy, what's to stop us from getting that same complete joy? Nothing. And it's an interesting thing to be a Christian and to seek joy because we think, 
You know, there's been so much of my life that my happiness has been dependent upon sin. You know, before I knew Christ, and even after I knew Christ, in some cases, my happiness, what, what I look to for fulfillment, has been dependent upon sin. And so when I come to Christ, I almost want to say, I shouldn't be happy, I shouldn't be joyful, I should always hang my head low, but rather what the Bible shows us, and what Philippians, I think, is showing us, is that pursuing joy is right. Yeah? Because when we pursue joy in Christ, we're showing Him to be that ultimate satisfier of our souls, and nothing else can do that. Okay, now let's go to verses 3 and 4. So this is the perspective, a viewpoint of considering others over ourselves through Christ. In the bulletin, there's another word, I think selfish is in there, and I I missed the opportunity to take it out there, so I'm sorry, you can cross that word out. It's a viewpoint of consideration of others over self, through Christ. So now Paul speaks to the individual. And this is the perspective. The, re- the reason for why we have this perspective is found in the next passage, which we'll end reading today um, before communion. But what this comes down to in verses 3 through 4, let's read them. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have the, oh, sorry, no, I, I keep wanting to go. It's such a good, such a good passage. We can't go any further. Um, humility. This is the perspective where we consider others as more important than ourselves. So humility is a right view of God that leads to a right view of self that leads to a right view of others. It has to start with God. We cannot be humble if we start with understanding ourselves. We cannot be humble if we start with understanding other people. We can only truly embrace humility if we start with our perspective of God. If I can look to God and say, He is God, He's the creator of the universe, He holds all things together, He knows everything, He's all-powerful, and I am just a little flea in comparison. Right? I mean, we need to start there. God is God, I am just a, just a piece of His creation. In the grand scheme, I barely matter in compared to who He is. So I get my perspective of God, and then I get my perspective of myself, and then I get my perspective of others. Because in my perspective of self, I see that even though I am a flea, God sent Jesus to die for me. That was not supposed to be a rhyme. He sent Christ on my behalf so that I could be right with him, and no longer just be a flea in creation, but rather be his beloved child in Christ. And so because that has happened, when I look to others and get a humble perspective in relationship to other people, I see that other people need the same thing that I needed from Christ and that it's available to them and that Christ thought that way not only of myself but of anyone who will believe. And that shapes my perspective of humility towards them. I ought to be, and everyone will one day, be humbled before God. Those who encounter him in Scripture cannot help but be humbled. If you look at any time that even an angel shows up, what's the response? When an angel or God shows up, what do, the, what do people do? Yeah, they worship or they fall down on their faces in fear. They don't just go, oh, hey, look, guys, Jesus is here. Did you see? Right? If he just showed up and walked up the steps, we'd be like, hey, Jesus, there's a seat for you in the back somewhere. Right? It would be a radically amazing experience, right? You cannot help it if you have a right view of God, but be humbled. Um, I really like what a pastor said one time. He was talking about encountering God and how 
we, we say sometimes that we've encountered God, but we don't show, there's no evidence that that's actually happened. So the example was, he said, if I was called to speak somewhere, and I was late, and I came in really late, and I had my suit, and you know, my bow tie in this case, or whatever, that I looked, I looked clean, and I was ready to preach, but I said, hey, sorry I was late, I actually got into an accident on the highway, um, I was run over by a semi-truck. And um, you know, all my bones were broken, and, and all this terrible stuff happened to me, but I made it, and I'm sorry I'm late. Would you believe me? Of course not. Not if you're standing up there ready to preach a sermon. And he said that many people say they've encountered God, but there is no evidence, and in fact there is contrary evidence to that actually being true. This is not saying that we need to create a persona. And this is so much what we do in our culture. We create what we want people to see of us. Rather, all we need is to humbly approach God and allow him to change us. Not that we need to allow him, but embrace what he wants to do in our lives. I liken it as well to those who encounter him in scripture being so humbled is that um, it's as if, it's like when you, when you meet a bear in real life, you know, this has probably happened to all of us at some point, right? Hiking through the woods and a grizzly bear shows up. What are you supposed to do? We all know because this has all happened to us. Are you supposed to make noise? Oh man, that ruins the illustration. Okay. Can we pretend you're still supposed to play dead? No? Okay, listen. The next time a bear approaches you in the wilderness, make noise and look big, right? That's the other one, right? You're supposed to like kind of stand tall and make a lot of noise. But let's pretend that you're still supposed to play dead, right? Because that that's the illustration, okay? Man, that really ruined it. That's okay. It's okay. It's good. It's good to learn things because we need to be ready for these bear attacks. So in the thought of playing dead before a bear, what we're doing is we're saying... You know, we see the bear, we see him for who he is, he's much bigger than us, there's nothing we can do, and so we simply fall down as if we are dead. There's no winning that fight, the only thing we can do is embrace the fact and accept defeat. So it is with God. We, in, in a true encounter with him, we can only fall on our faces before him. Um, humility is sometime, sometimes misconstrued for thinking poorly of ourselves. And so... Let's see here. Yeah, so Tim Keller is going to help us out on this. He says, The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or less of myself, but thinking of myself less. Does that make sense? Yes. It's a little bit of a, you know, back and forth here, but it's, it's really helpful if you grab it. Okay? What he's saying is, is that I'm not supposed to, in gospel humility, I'm not supposed to think, I am nothing, I am worthless, I have no value, I'm not loved by Christ. You know, we don't create a negative persona of who we are, but rather than taking the time to create that persona, we take more time thinking of other things rather than ourselves. Does that make sense? Namely, considering other people is more important than ourselves. Right? The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or less of myself, but thinking of myself less. Very good. And it's from a great book. And if you're not much for reading, like me, really it's hard sometimes. Um, he, he wrote this book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, and it's such a quick read. I didn't even realize, once I was done with it, I was amazed at how quickly it was. So if realizing that humility is not just the purpose of bringing myself down, but rather it is thinking of myself less. So through this perspective of humility... We can take God's actions of grace in verse 1 and express them in, reaction, in the reactions of verse 2. Now, the truth of counting others as more significant than ourselves is not meant to lead to a hierarchy within the church. Okay? This is not to say, I am the worst, I am the lowest, and everybody else is more important than me. And No, that's not the idea here. 
We saw in the very beginning of the book that Paul the Apostle calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. The only time he really pulls his apostle card on the church is when the church is in danger of false teaching and needed to set them on the straight and narrow. What it does mean is that we no longer see a hierarchy, but in each other, we see an opportunity to live like Christ, an outlet for what Christ has done in our lives through our fellowship with each other. So remember, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. We all have concerns and challenges. If you consider verse 4, and the interests of our own hearts and those of others, seems like far too much to bear. You know, If we not only look out for our own needs and our own concerns, but imagine adding someone else's onto your heart to the degree that you carry your own concerns, that sounds overwhelming, doesn't it? I mean, if you really thought about it. But here's the picture. If we are all doing that, we're actually able to bear the burden. So, Josh Hutchinson, Hutchison isn't here, and he gave me this great illustration last week, and it just popped up to me. But, um, when, oh man, you know what? Talk to Josh about a great illustration for that, okay? It's, it's awesome. It's a farming illustration. It really, really pulls this together. So I'm just going to keep you in suspense over that. Okay, so Christ thought of himself less in order to think of you. In obedience to the Father, he went to the cross. He's risen again to prove that what he said was true and to accomplish the work of salvation on our behalf. Now today we're going to go to communion in a couple moments. And it's, it's natural for us to flow from humility to the concept of communion. Um, because really what we're doing in communion is we're doing a picture of receiving um, what Christ has done for us uh, by faith. 